0: Welcome back to the Andrew Curtis Show, where we continue our uh, ongoing mission to answer a whole bunch of interesting questions. Chief amongst them this week is, how do you help a person to make a choice in their own best interests? Uh, it's amazing how when we can see in somebody else's life that something is not serving them well, we want to influence them, we want to help them. How do we do that? Uh, and then if you expand that out, even uh, in New Zealand right now, we're in the middle of an election cycle, and it is a whole bunch of promises being thrown left, right and centre about how to best help New Zealanders get the best life possible well you know what in my journey to answer that question i've realized that there's more going on than just asking um, intellectual questions and getting intellectual responses from people Uh, behavior is more complex than that and this is something that was understood and um, led to the creation of the behavioral insights team in the uk it's a fusion of uh, public policy and an understanding of uh, behavioral science behavioral psychology which to me is the coolest thing in the world, and only beaten by the fact, or exceeded perhaps, by the fact that there is now a behavioural insights team serving out of New Zealand, so I knew I had to speak to them, which meant that I lined up this conversation this week with Lee McCauley. So, very recently, I have completed a book by Richard Thaler called Misbehaving. It's a book that introduced me to the concept of behavioural economics and uh, understanding how people are motivated, and then also, how do we really help people make better choices for themselves? Uh, well, at the end of that book, um, Dr. Thaler talked about uh, a group called the Behavioural Insights Team that started in the UK, and it was the first attempt to try and get behavioural psychology uh, also intermeshed with policy development. Um, it's been a big success there, and very recently in New Zealand, a branch was actually set up, uh, and that is uh, headed by Senior Advisor Lee McCauley, and Lee joins me now. Hello, Lee. Kia ora. So Lee, um, why don't you tell me a little bit of the backstory here because I do wanna get into some of the, the finer points of um, how you know behavioral psychology and behavioral economics is being intertwined here just to see how it's relevant for everybody. But can you tell me a little bit about your journey in terms of getting involved with the behavioral insights team?
1: Um, yeah, absolutely, Andrew. Um, so it's kind of an interesting story. So my background was uh, as a career civil servant. I started in the UK, mm-hmm. um, working in defense and security. Um, and I moved over here with my my partner and our first child in 2009 to New Zealand, mm-hmm. uh, in defense here, then moved to Treasury to kind of expand my horizons a bit, do something different. And while I was at Treasury, I went to a, a presentation by David Halpin, the chief executive of the behavioral insights team, and Rory Gallagher, who's the managing director for Asia Pacific based in Sydney. Mm-hmm. Uh, It sort of sounds a bit corny, but I was so inspired by what they had to say and the impact of what they were doing, and it just really, really spoke to me. And I thought to myself, why why aren't we doing this in New Zealand? There's so much opportunity to apply the realistic understanding of human behaviour, of psychology, of how people interact with each other, and using that in public policy development. And... Mm -hmm. So resolved to try and make it happen and um, tried within Treasury and we set up a community of practice with um, over 50, I think by the end there were maybe even 100 people involved across Wellington and wow. um, some even travelling down from Auckland and the like to, to take part. And um, So there was a lot of enthusiasm but we yep. could never quite set up a team or get it off the ground. And um, the be- uh, towards the end um, End of 2015, um, a couple of government departments were interested in doing something a bit more concrete and a bit more specific. And that's how um, I ended up talking to Rory in Sydney and saying, would the Behavioural Insights team be interested in setting up an office in Wellington? And um, we decided to give it a go and see what happened. And Mm. here we are over a year later, and uh, yeah, we'll go, and I have a colleague um, seconded over from the UK office, uh-huh. and um, yeah, things are going well. It's really good.
0: Yeah, amazing what a little inspiration does, huh? Indeed. <laughs> so I, it's probably best that you actually explain, um, you know, I guess the, as an overview of what the behavioural insights team is about and, and what your kind of goals and objectives are. How would you how would you best explain that to someone?
1: Okay, so um, the Behavioural Insights team was set up with uh, a couple of objectives. Um, one was to bring a realistic understanding of human behaviour to um, public policy. Mm-hmm. And the other was to take a highly empirical approach to testing what worked. Mm-hmm. And I think the one, one of the real assets, one of the real strengths of what the Behavioural Insights team has done is take a a humility a a very humble approach to understanding that people and how they behave in practice is often very complex and what works in a psychology study might not necessarily work in every context you know a way way to influence um somebody to pay their taxes may be different from the way you get them to volunteer Mm. and so um what you need to do is actually where possible run randomized control trials or otherwise try and test in yeah. the real world what works in practice and see whether your well-founded well ideas of what works from a sort of psychology right. perspective are yeah. really going to make a difference on the ground um for uh, forever really um and i say this as a former policy official uh-huh. um most policy has been founded on um you know, well-researched, well-meaning bits of work, but it often gets rolled out without that sort of robust testing and analysis. Sure. And yet, you know, if if you're given a cancer drug, the chances are that, you know, somebody's tested it, or you might even be taking part in a test yourself of, you know, something that's life and death. But we don't do that with social workers or teachers. Mm. We don't do that. Even, you know, figuring out what the best way of communicating with somebody is, you know, if you want to get someone to respond to your letter to fill in a survey or whatever, what are the best and most effective ways of doing that? And behavioral insights team combines those two things. Mm. Um, And I think it's the combination that's been really powerful and really effective.
0: Yeah. Uh, look, I mean, there's, there's so much that you've actually just said during that, that, that uh, explanation too that I'd love to touch on. So if it's all right with you, I'll go back to the very beginning on that and we'll kind of expand from that point on because this idea of having a realistic understanding of how, of how people really behave um, versus how we think uh, or we like to imagine people behave. Um, for me, what I find particularly inspiring about, well, one of the many things really um, is that, you know, people are not one of the I guess the understanding that's fundamental to this but seems to be lost in other places is that people are not fundamentally just well purely rational uh that there are other influences going on um and those things affect our choices um and yet we often seem to get upset at each other because you know you're not behaving rationally um we seem to have this expectation that everyone's going to when, when nobody really does where does that come from
1: um well I think uh, there are, there are probably a few few different ways of thinking about that but um i, I guess in some ways because the economists have held sway over over policy in uh, to a large extent now i think economics is a fantastic and you know really interesting subject it's been tremendously powerful in influencing people to think through you know costs and benefits and um but a lot of economic modeling is based on a set of assumptions mm. and um, in some ways, often tries to simplify behavior. That's how economic models work. Yeah. And that in itself is not a bad thing. Economic models are useful. They're a great way of trying to make sense of what's very complex environments and trying to then work out what and how people might respond if you change that environment in some way. Mm. And you know, really obvious things that you can do, like incentives, if you want somebody to do something offer them some kind of reward either you know a discount or um a a, a sort of a financial incentive in some way payment can sure. motivate people to do things and so i mean there's there's nothing wrong with taking that stuff into account and thinking about that and economists themselves i think have realized that you know the pure economic model where people only you know sit there rationally and analyze what choices they've got and make decisions on that basis, is um, it's something that they've adapted to. You know, um, if you talk to economists, they'll talk about, um, you know, bounded rationality, the idea that there are kind of limitations to how far and, and how um, deep that would go. Yeah. And, you know, no economist would expect that, you know, to take an example of mobile phone tariffs, there are literally, you know, millions of different tariffs available just between different providers, different scales, whether it's a, an ongoing contract or a pay-as-you-go thing, what type of phone you've got, etc. you know, how much data, how many minutes, all these kind of really detailed things. No economist even would expect that everyone's going to sit there and weigh up.
0: <laughs> yeah, grind through
1: 4,000 pages of information. Exactly. Um, right. And, you know, so they, they get and they understand that, but I think um, what what the behavioral insights type approach and and other things like um, design thinking, co-design um, processes also do, is just bring that perspective of, well, hang on, let's just look at this from from the other end of the telescope, if you like. Let's also think about the real people at the other end of it. Yeah. What are they doing? What is it that, that the behavior, the behavior that's manifesting itself and how might you then think about what you do differently to try and try and shape that? Mm. Having, I think, an understanding of psychology is a really useful tool in that context. And um, you talked about Richard Taylor in one of his books, and he's, you know, tremendously influential for us, mm. um, really important. Um, Nudge was really one of the cornerstones of the foundation of the behavioral insights team and sort of an intellectual pillar for yeah. us. Um, but the other one is um, a guy called Danny Kahneman who yes. wrote, um, uh, uh, among other things, uh, sort of summarized his life's work in a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. Yes. And he talked about having a sort of system one and system two, dual process reasoning, they taught, um, he called it. Yeah. Um, the idea is that you've got a sort of system one, which is this automatic, fast, unthinking way of making most decisions most of the time and actually stopping and thinking really deeply analytically about everything that you do would just be exhausting you wouldn't get anything and so it works really well and it's quite efficient but it's necessarily well suited to every decision and every choice that you make Mm. but where i think policymakers have come from and often thinking deeply about you know um the the sort of economic rationality that you'd start off with the question with um sort of assumes that people are using that system too which is a more slow deliberative process mm. of thinking about what you're going to do how you're going to do it and um, one example that i often like to talk about is um two different types of travel so if you're going on holiday, you probably do a bit of research. You probably sit there and think, where might we go? What are the choices? What might, you know, what do I fancy doing? Yeah. Um, you know, what are the activities? What Where to go? What do I want to do? What do I want to see? What's the food like? What's the hotel like? You, you know, who might I fly with? And you'll kind of do your homework and sit and think about all that stuff. Mm. Probably when you're going to work in the morning, you don't sit there and go, right, what are the different options? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Right. And you, so you're not kind of weighing them up and evaluating them in yeah. that same deliberative yeah. way. And I think probably uh, uh, one, of the, one of the failings of that more sort of economic rationalist way of thinking has been that you assume that people will make decisions that are more, mm. more based on that kind of system to deliberative process and so you assume that you change something in the environment, it will have a corresponding cha- influence and change of behaviors, mm-hmm. and it's always the case. So, you know, if you want people to exercise more, or you want people to, you know, doctors to prescribe um, fewer antibiotics, the traditional tools for doing that are things like education. Now, right. we'll go there and we'll tell people that they need they need to exercise more and it's bad for their health well, <laughs> right right it, it turns out it's not a lack of knowledge it's not it, people are not sitting there going should i sit on the sofa and watch tv tonight or not and the reason i'm going to choose to do that is through awareness right it isn't like that our behavior is much more automatic much more kind of day-to-day than that
0: Mm. You know, while you were saying that too, and thinking of this idea of how we communicate these things, um, I mean, obviously your your department would work with whoever's in government. So this is not a um, uh, you know trying to channel this in any one direction. But when I'm looking at um, even how different policy discussions are being made at the moment, you know, we're in the middle of an election in New Zealand right now, uh, and the assumption, I guess, that people are are choosing even who to vote for based on a, a detailed analytical breakdown of uh, all of the policy and, and procedures prescribed by every party um, is, uh, you know, I think quite quite far from the reality there too, isn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, there's been some quite interesting research done in places like Finland um, that seems to show that, that trust is a sort of single big determinant of whether wow. you like to vote for somebody or not. And, mm. you know... It, it's using a mental shortcut or heuristic if you like Yes. people think who 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 do i trust who do i feel kind of comfortable with and that's the person that i will vote for um you know there've been studies i think showing that um taller the us presidential candidates who are taller are more likely to be voted for as if that's a sort of proxy for this yeah so yeah some yeah kind of challenges in that context of the election
0: yeah what the other it- sorry one thing i was going to say on that front too is that um i one thing i remember reading from um, danny kahneman's book yeah the thinking fast and slow as well was that idea of substitution um where you know instead of when we've got a a very complex question in front of us we will try and break it down to a simpler version that we can answer uh and then we'll go with that as if it's an answer to the more complex one so exactly what you're saying there kind of lines up pretty well you know we look at these political parties and we've had an interesting case study in New Zealand as well with a change of the Labour leader, who they've seen an amazing, amazing resurgence in the polls, and it could as, be as simple as somebody going, you know what, I think I trust him more than that guy. That's enough for me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. People do it all the time. Um, I was, what I was going to say it was, a, um, it was a slightly different thing, rather than about party political stuff, but I think uh-huh. is really interesting in this context. Yep. Is just the idea of getting out and voting? Mm. Okay. So, yeah. there's a a sort of constant refrain that you hear about not enough people voting and particularly not enough young people getting out there and expressing their democratic right. Yeah. And often, and I saw this in the news just last night, it's often framed in a really negative way. Okay. And that poses a really interesting challenge because – the people who are saying not enough people are voting are probably motivated to encourage more people to vote. Right. But by creating a social norm message saying lots of young people are not voting might actually have the opposite effect. Uh, And there's something just really interesting to think about there. You know, what, what is the behavior that you're trying to influence and what are the ways that you do it? We, you know, we, we are really heavily influenced by those around us and, um, so the idea that if you tell people that people like you don't vote <laughs> that can be enforced the problem rather oh, than oh wow. Um, i so love that perspective it's, yeah it's a, it's it's one of those really important things where the detail matters mm. and it's surprising how often the detail is the bit that gets forgotten about you know the design of a form or the shape of a letter or whatever um yeah. can have really quite significant influence and impact much more so than um than perhaps the policy itself Mm. or the, the the cost of a financial incentive that might produce a similar size effect yeah but i mean something actually
0: too that that struck me as i started to learn more about this this side of thing myself was it's a bit of a blow to the ego i suppose on a personal level when you realize how easily you are influenced by little things that if someone was to ask you did this influence your decision-making? You'd say, no, no, of course not. Uh, that's ridiculous. Um, but uh, I mean, I know there's an example um, from um, the behavioral insights team in, in the UK about the letters that went out to uh, to people to get them to pay their tax on time. And there was literally, I think it was just a, a, a one line that was added that said, you know, so 90% of people pay their tax on time. And that yep. had a, a notable increase in the number of people who paid. Now, for anyone else to say that made a big difference, I'd say, no, no, of course not. But, I mean, the evidence was right there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, it, it's a fantastic example mm. um, of, of how we're influenced by the sort of social cues around us, by, by what other people are doing. Yeah. And you're absolutely right, yeah. Um, so we, the, there, were, there was a, a tax letter that was going out and, yeah, literally just adding a sentence saying nine out of ten people pay their taxes mm. on time.
0: That was a, yeah
1: the response rate, it turned out that if you also made that a bit more salient for people, a bit more concrete by saying nine out of 10 people in your town, that uh. had a bigger effect. And if you uh. made it more personalized by saying nine out of people, nine out of 10 people with your level of debt in Wellington, pay their taxes on time, that had an even bigger effect again. And taken together, they were worth, um you know tens of millions of pounds, just these tiny changes to the content yeah. matter um interestingly, since then we've done um some similar work in um other places like Guatemala uh-huh. and, and that telling people there that um sixty percent of people pay their tax or pay some tax <laughs> now. Right. You might think that that's going to have the opposite effect because it's that normalizing thing, but actually, it was really surprising for people that um, 60% pay some sort of tax. And it had an even bigger effect on really? people's likelihood of paying because most people uh, assumed that nobody else paid tax. Huh. It was more shocking and more surprising that saying, hey, a lot of people are paying their tax and you should do the same.
0: Yeah and And just just so, for people who are listening as well, and, and and I want to make sure there's a deeper understanding for them as well. what What we're really looking to say is that um, if we can have an understanding of of psychology uh, and and what really motivates people and how, um yeah, we respond to, like you said, social norms and things like that, um and even our own uh, preference for making fast decisions or or you know slower ones depending on the subject matter, just being aware of that changes how we interact with one another, and then potentially how we can influence people. Is that right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean sitting sitting as a, a policymaker in the treasury a, a couple of years ago, uh-huh. I think I've always thought of this as kind of something that operates at three different levels, the okay. behavioral insights type approach. So to me, there's, there's the stuff around frontline service delivery, uh, you know, the design of letters, the shape of them, the, the type of messages that you're using and, you know, how you're communicating with people and how you're trying to sort of directly influence their behavior. But I think you can also think about it in the context of things like design of regulation as well. Sometimes you don't necessarily need a regulation. Um, and, you know, we've got a, a lot of people find the friction costs of of things like regulation to be unwelcome and painful. But so sometimes just you might be able to avoid it by um taking these simpler approaches. But also thinking about, you know, what how how's the marketplace operating for consumers and what are the biases that marketers mm. seem to influence our behavior and mm. maybe some of that's not okay. Um, you know, in New Zealand there was the example of the consumer campaign a couple of years ago to Uh get tick boxes um there's pre-populated tick boxes when you're buying a plane ticket from um uh, from from being sort of automatically added and bumping up the costs and because just the default setting of having the box pre-ticked meant that lots of people were buying extras and add-ons that they didn't necessarily want or need Another thing at the moment that they're um, also doing around um, tickets, I think, uh-huh. uh, particularly the the sell-on. So those kind of add-on fees that they have at the end that are hidden from you and then just pop up at the end when you're already kind of committed into it and you're drawn into the idea that you're going to buy this thing. Yeah. Um, there's, there's some interesting stuff there around just regulatory design, um, and 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 then I think there's also just uh, a more strategic level you can also start to think about policy um in from a psychology kind of perspective as well so an example of that is a report we published last year on poverty and decision making oh okay yep um you know it looks at some of the some of the biases and some of the sort of cognitive challenges that being in serious financial stress wow. places people. tell me more uh, about that yeah so we're, mo- we're more likely, for instance, if, if you're financially stressed, to uh, to um, make strong have a stronger kind of present bias. So the idea that um, we 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 all favour immediate reward versus long term mm-hmm. sensible decisions. We're you know we're more likely to go and you know. Buy the bar of chocolate, or we're going to spend up on the credit card and buy you know a nice pair of shoes and a new TV, uh-huh. rather than put it into our pensions and enjoy the benefits of it in thirty years time or whatever. Yeah, and it it being being financially stressed, it makes you sort of increases that present bias. It actually makes you want the gratification immediately even more and put off those kind of long term decisions. Mm-hmm. Likewise, um. The, the the cognitive load of being in financial hardship as such that um, there's there's a really interesting book called Scarcity by um, Shafir and Mullanathan uh-huh. and um, they they did research looking at the impact of of telling people of you know prompting them to feel financially stressed and reminding them of their financial position uh-huh. so what they were doing is, um, IQ tests effectively in shopping malls Uh Um, and so getting people to do IQ tests and then they'd say to these people, um, okay, so imagine that you've just been involved in a car accident and Mm. it's going to cost $5,000 to fix your car. Mm. It turned out that people who were comfortably off financially and who could kind of manage their way around that, Mm. it had no impact on their performance at all. When you told it to people who didn't have the money to be able to do that, it caused it induced feelings of stress and their performance in these iQ tests was the equivalent to um, uh, of ten i q points and that's wow. roughly the same as not having slept the night before huh so the idea that we make you know, design systems that are complex and, you know, put barriers in the way of people Mm. accessing services and things like that, because we want to protect against fraud. Really interesting kind of question and challenge. Mm. Um, When we know that probably some of the needy people in those financially stressed situations might need help and might need to be easier for them to access those services because otherwise they're going to drop out because they just find it too taxing and too difficult. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's the same with a, a tax form or, you know, applying for a refund or whatever. If we make things really complex for people, for anybody, it's going to be difficult for them to do. Um, but it's more so if you're sort of stressed because you're really tired, exhausted and, you know, out of cash financially. Yeah. See, uh,
0: yeah, I find that really fascinating, actually. Again, I suppose because it's election season and these things are, are brought top of mind, but this, this idea around poverty in particular, if we can drill down on that a, a little bit further again, that I, I do find it interesting um, that when we look at approaches to solving poverty, uh, you know, that often, again, that idea of, you know, we, we try and solve a complex problem with a simple answer, uh, that if you are in a strong financial position, you could say something like, well, just get another job that pays you more. Uh, you know, just move to another town, just do something like that. And it seems, a, you know, an easy choice to make. But if you are in that position uh, of, of feeling a serious financial lack, to to actually understand it, that, that, that creates a, a genuine load on the mind that makes it harder for you to make decisions. Um, that, that, to me, has incredible implications for then how we look to address poverty in this country.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, um, I mean, there are... There are other psychological elements at play you know a really good example is um stereotype threat okay. so this is the idea that you don't if that that you react according to how how you think your type fits into a given situation okay. so um there's some really interesting studies done around um, uh, women taking maths tests in Uh the states and um when when asian women were reminded of being women they performed quite badly in these tests because they were being reminded that they're women and women are supposedly not as good at maths because that's a man thing which is complete nonsense um right yeah data Uh but this idea you know has um resonance in sort of Mm. common balance and so people kind of buy into that idea so it's okay you remind them that they're women and that their performance deteriorates yeah you remind them that they're asian instead yeah (laughs) they perform better than average wow because asians are good at maths wow yeah yeah there's no sort of deep-seated biological reason for that Mm. but that, that idea of, you know, fitting into a particular stereotype affects how people behave. So mm. you can see how telling people that, you know, this group or that group in society is not good, you know, young people are not working or, um, you know, um, we we hear a lot about, you know, Maori and Pacifica and how they, you know, have a far greater degree of, um, of representation in um, lots of the poor socioeconomic economic Outcomes in New Zealand and in mm. the stats, then that actually risks becoming a self fulfilling prophecy as you start going, Well, you know, these people they fit like that, and then people start to believe it of themselves mm. and you know, act accordingly. And that, that's quite a dangerous space to get into because you can yeah. reinforce that, um, you know, what's already to me, you know, a, a bad outcome
0: yeah so so has there been some work done then on on what maybe the the healthier or the more effective ways of addressing those particular issues are
1: um great question i well i think i mean there are there are lots of things you can do to try and address your own um conscious and unconscious bias in terms of how you frame things Mm. um i you know we were talking before about framing things in a more positive context and Mm. uh, you can also look at how you use role models for instance and peers to um you know that you can undermine a stereotype by showing somebody an example of success and right, particularly in right. somebody um particularly having somebody who's you know sort of busting that myth standing mm. in front of you and providing that example you know it's a really powerful way of doing it yeah. and so there are interesting questions there how can you harness The people who are you know getting out of poverty who are you know finding work getting in getting education or whatever and get them to come back and kind of share their stories and you know tell people Mm. and i think there are you know all kinds of interesting challenges around that yeah Um, you can you can also help people to um to to kind of vision and plan for for what they do themselves as well and kind of get greater control of their own destiny mm-hmm. um, what we've done um over in the uk and, um, with clients um with with sort of health problems in the uk um we introduced a thing called the with the department of work and pensions called the health and work conversation mm-hmm. and this is a couple of um different sort of uh, behavioral science-backed um innovations. So, one is a thing called mental contrasting, which is the idea that you sort of um, envisage a different future for yourself. You know, what do you want to get to? What What's the goal that you want to achieve? And try and articulate what that is and try and imagine yourself achieving mm. the goal. You know, athletes do it all the time. You know, imagine themselves right. scoring or getting over the finish line. And, um, you know, it, it helps you to realize your goal, to think about yourself in that situation. Yeah. And then also... Um, Using that with a thing called implementation intentions, so implementation intentions is kind of making a plan um, and making a plan about how you'll deal with an obstacle so um typically a sort of if then plan if this happens, right. then I will do that so if you're thinking about looking for a job you know if um my hip flares up again, then I will do these things and so interestingly that With that that work, which was originally done, um, using a a whole group of people, including I think fishermen in Grimsby in Yorkshire, who Uh were unemployed and wanted to get fitter. And it turned out that for them, using these two techniques of mental contrasting and implementation intentions, they were able to get more active and achieve more, you know, sort of in terms of their own physical goals. Sure. one of the things that people are good at is, um, when they do these kind of if-then plans is that they don't only overcome the barrier that they've thought about, but actually they just have a bit more of a sense of control and uh. are able to overcome other barriers that they haven't necessarily thought of. They've got a bit more of a sense of self-efficacy and mm. of their environment, and that helps seems to help people cope and manage with those sort of challenging circumstances they face. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it, you know, a really interesting technique that I think, you, you know, we can all use in our everyday lives.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, I'm thinking about, again, how when we're looking to particularly help a certain group in, in society as well, um, to start to, I mean, that that kind of approach, I'm just imagining how cool it would be, uh, again, on a political level, I suppose, because that's where things are at here right now. But, to, you know, understanding that... Um, you know so much of the the challenges that people say in poverty for example are experiencing is connected to their own thinking um and before we start focusing on the um the physical tasks that we're going to get them to go and do if we can just spend a little bit of time doing what you've talked about there helping people to prepare their minds prepare themselves mentally for the change they're looking to have happen it can be a more effective kind of long-term solution
1: um yeah it, it certainly helps um i mean it's important as well i think and our approach is is very much based on you know understanding what the data shows you and also understanding what kind of lived experience looks like and what happens in the real world Mm. and so the one thing that i'm very conscious of is it's very easy to come up with something like hey you know have we got a solution for you yeah but It doesn't always work in practice. Yeah, yeah. So uh, absolutely, you know, thinking about your situation and how do you get out of it and what do you do, really important. But, you know, if you're a homeless person sleeping on the streets (laughs) of all times with not Um, you know, to to your name, there may be some more immediate problems and immediate needs like your drug dependency or, you know, um, an absolute lack of cash that... These nifty techniques are not necessarily the most effective thing that you can do first off, um, yeah. and you know you've got to be, you've got to be pragmatic about sort of how and where you apply them.
0: Yeah, and and that speaks to that second part that I you know I did want to make sure we touched on as well. Where you you mentioned about how um, there's a highly empirical approach to this, mm. um, because in in my observation, um, when when a lot of policy is is discussed amongst. Uh, you know again those in power often it, it comes with a lot of anecdotal evidence from people uh, that says well you know in, in my you know I've, I've seen people do this or in my life this is what helped me uh, but this empirical approach that you're talking about is something to kind of get beyond just that um, anecdotal kind of uh, example isn't it and, and provide like you say is this something that does actually work for a significant number of people or are we just looking at a I don't know a fringe result or something.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and um, I, I, I think there are probably a couple of um, anecdotes that I'll tell you in, in my yeah, context. Yeah, um, Please do, just to spoil things. Um, so, uh, the first of them is um, how how taking that empirical approach actually was able allowed us to demonstrate the efficacy of using behavioural insights really simply versus um, a, a more sort of involved intervention in a health context so i said earlier um you know how do you influence um doctors not to prescribe as many antibiotics and so um though this was a, a, a it's a major public health problem in uh, around the world and in the the uk they had um the, there's a national target of reducing the overall level of um, of prescribing. And uh, the National Health Service decided that they'd um, produce a, a sort of public health campaign because the, the perceived problem was patients are coming into surgeries and they're asking GPs for antibiotics because they've got a cold, for instance, and it turns out that that's not a particularly helpful remedy for it, but... Mm. Mm, one of the ways that GPs are rated in in the UK is based on patient satisfaction, and you're more likely to feel satisfied if your GP gives you what you want. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, um, the, this idea was, you know, patient. We, we need to influence patient behaviour. So why don't we set, send, you know, develop this really smart looking advertising campaign? With leaflets for the practice nurse for the GP. For um, particularly for, for patients as well. So they, they can be handed this and told why, you know, they don't need an antibiotic for this and this is going to um, reduce demand. Right. And we said, well, you know, great, that's that's perfectly reasonable thing to try out. But how about we try something a bit different instead? So uh-huh. we thought maybe the GPs themselves have got quite a lot of control and power over this. Maybe we can influence their behavior. And so in parallel there was the leaflet campaign and the uh, a letter campaign that we sent and where gps it was the top 20 percent of prescribers um in gp surgeries around the country Uh were sent one or the other of these interventions and the the letter that we devised which was a hell of a lot cheaper than the campaign Mm. came from the chief medical officer and appealed to sort of pro-social motivation of doctors and said, "Help us join the fight against um, antibiotic over-prescribing," and um, pointed out to them that they were in the top 20% of GPs wow. prescribing. Yeah. And so there was some sort of framing there to to say, look, you know, we we know we know that you can do better than this, yeah. and it came from the chief medical officer rather than, you know, either an official or a politician, somebody that we thought would be respected within the profession. Mm. And um, it also, <clears throat> excuse me, it also gave um, a couple of tips for GP. So if a patient really wants a, an antibiotic and you don't think they want, they need one, then how about you give them a deferred prescription? So if this hasn't cleared up in three days, you can go to the pharmacy and get it. So they still leave with their piece of paper, but they're far less likely to go and cash it in because in three days' time they'll probably be better because right. they didn't get the antibiotic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. So we we compared those those two interventions and the result was a four percent drop roughly in prescribing behaviour from getting the letter compared to Receiving the the leaflets, yeah, and leaflets had zero effect compared to uh, not doing anything at all. They had yeah. no impact at all, and it was a million, you know, millions of pounds worth of yeah. effort and really swish advertising and everything. <laughs> yeah. Providing information doesn't necessarily influence behaviour.
0: Mm. Mm. Um, so when we look at then, um, I'm now fascinated to think about you know your work, particularly within New Zealand. So it would be great to hear um, what some of the initiatives are that, uh, that that the team are working on here, and and some of the things that you're discovering. Is there something you know particularly interesting or quirky about New Zealanders and the way we uh, we operate? Um, what's what's been the observation so far?
1: Um, I, I guess there are there are sort of a, a couple of things that I'll say, but the first is a bit of a caveat that. Um, uh, for client confidentiality reasons, sure. I can't really go into the detail of, sort yep. of exactly what I'm working on. Um, mm-hmm. we, we have been doing some work with Ministry of Social Development. We've also um, done some work for customs and for primary industries. And you know, there's a, a lot of agencies around town that we're talking to about how we might help mm-hmm. and the ways that behavioral insights can help them a- achieve their objectives more effectively um whether it's engaging with citizens whether it's um about um you know something at a more strategic level um and i was even talking to my kid's school the other day about how we might use that for the school renewing their charter so oh, um, right. kind of go, goes goes at every different level mm. um i i think i mean in some ways the it it's fair to say that that people are people mm. um they Sometimes, you know, cultural context really matters, and I think we're acutely conscious that, you know, um, New Zealand sits a little uh, apart from the rest of the world generally, and sure, you know, we yeah. have ethnic mix, we have a different demographic profile, um, and particularly, you know, I mentioned Murray and Pacifica before, um, who have, you know, much more collectivist-type cultures, mm. and that in itself poses some interesting challenges. So a lot of the studies in psychology are um, what's known as weird. So they, they're basically conducted <laughs> on U.S. Um, college students. Yes, yes, I remember reading something about this. Yeah, yeah. From industrialized, rich and democratic countries. Mm. And um, so, you know, we, we have to be really careful and conscious that what worked or what seems to have worked in the context of a study done, you know, at Stanford or Harvard or somewhere is not necessarily going to work here. But, you know, in a way, it, it just serves to reinforce the point that we need to be really empirical and really deliberate in thinking about how we roll this stuff out. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I I think that New Zealand is really open to this stuff, and I think it aligns very well with the idea of, having a sort of data-driven approach to understanding the impact of social policy. Let's, you know, be really clear and tight about what are the things we're trying to achieve? What are the things we're trying to measure? What are the, um, what are the interventions that we might do and how are we going to test and analyze them? And, um, you know, there's been a strong push in the last couple of years for, um, uh, more, more, better evidence-based and evaluative approaches to policy making. Um, Sir Peter Gluckman, the PM's chief science advisor, put out a report just in July, um, sort of advocating for more of that and saying, you know, we've oh, got cool. a lot to go. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of a lot of interest and a lot of opportunity actually in new zealand there are there are already some great examples of where what we'd call a behavioral insights approach is being used okay. I mean, new zealand was the first country in the world to automatically enroll people into pensions and okay. that is a tremendously powerful way of getting more people to save for their retirement you can argue about whether the levels right you can argue about you know whether that is fair or not um but the numbers enrolled in KiwiSaver now are up at sort of, you know, 80, 90 percent mark, whereas people enrolled in workplace pension schemes before that automatic enrollment happened, it was more like 30, 40 percent. Sure. So there's a dramatic increase in the numbers of people who are saving, and they're saving in ways that they just don't notice. It's kind of invisible to them, and right. you're growing this pot because, you know, if, if you say to somebody, you know, turn up and say, hey, you're earning $1,000 a week. We'd like to take 5% of that off you and put it away in a pension. You're going to feel that. You're going to notice it. But when it happens sort of invisibly behind the scenes, you don't notice it. It's it, it's it's just being sorted away for you. Mm. And it's a really powerful and effective way that's actually been copied in loads of places, including the UK, um because it's seen as effective and um you know i think it's great that that new zealand has been at the forefront of some of those ideas
0: yeah they made me think of um it's probably slightly morbid uh, take on it as well but i know they've had this uh, similar thing with um people becoming organ donors and that sort of stuff uh where uh, you know people can opt out but otherwise they are automatically um you know uh added to that that list and just in terms of the you know the broader health benefits that's had for the wider um wider population just by making it an automatic thing as opposed to maybe one more thing that people have to think about um, like you mentioned earlier yeah simplifying something um for people's own best interests uh you know it has an incredibly powerful effect
1: oh you're absolutely right and um I mean on organ donation I think rates here are in the order of sort of 20 25% of people uh, mm-hmm. on the donor register And in countries where you are automatically opted in and you have to make a conscious choice to opt out, it's more like 95%. I think um, Austria and Germany, Mm. um, often cited, I think, in Austria, it's automatically in and Germany it's not. And they sort of have that similar difference between them. And um, yeah, in, in in the UK, actually, we did some interesting work trying to increase the rate of people signing up. It was decided that... The, the sort of politics were such that no one would be prepared to go for automatic enrolment in mm. but are still ways that you might be able to nudge more people to um, sign up to join the organ donor register and um, we used the the sort of rego system uh, so renewing your car tax oh, yeah. uh, at the end of the year yeah. so doing it online there's a kind of landing page and that landing page was a uh, a message saying please join the organ donor register. Now, there were about 20 million unique um, hits every year because that's how many cars there are on the road. Right. And um, so we only ran it for quite a short time but it was still a randomized control trial involving I think 1.3 million visitors. Mm. And um, so we were able to run a, quite a complex trial involving eight different versions of the message. Right. That um, went out to um, to different people, so you know you, you you just see one of them, and we were able to affect uh, to see what the effect was on response rates and sign up rates mm. depending on which type of message that you saw, and um, it's a it, it's a game that's great to play when you're doing a presentation with this stuff, and you can kind of put all the different <laughs> yeah. messages up, um, you know, trying different logos or trying different ways of framing how you put mm. it. So yeah. You can form up to nine lives by donating your organs and you know that's a strong pro-social message it's well founded in behavioral science but not necessarily effective right Um, and it turns out that the one that was really effective was the one that you kind of internalized yourself and that appealed more to a sense of reciprocity and said if you needed an organ transplant would you have one if so please help others and the difference is Sort of on the face of it don't look huge it went from sort of roughly two percent to roughly three percent of people signing up
0: yeah
1: but across a year that's a hundred thousand more people on the organ donor register yeah. absolutely huge impact for you know again just trying out some different approaches and trialing that different way of framing really the same message and um that's now something that um the um I, I've forgotten what they called now. The organ donor body in the UK mm-hmm. uh, uses sort of on an ongoing basis because they found that that was really powerful and um, they they wanted to roll it out nationally. Mm.
0: Wow, and I mean as you say, and that, those kind of little things multiplied over time can have a have a massive change. So I I mean for me that I find that I find that really inspiring and find find that really you know really exciting to see the difference you can make in terms of i mean you mentioned earlier on the word nudge often gets used it's not about making taking someone's decision-making power away from them uh it's saying let's acknowledge the fact that framing and 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 cultural context um affects our choices and if we're aware of that well we can we can you know respond accordingly and hopefully then we interact with with, with each other on a more you know kind of powerful and meaningful meaningful kind of level yeah
1: absolutely and um I mean I I think when when the behavioral insights team was first being set up, um there was a lot of concern about this, you know, we're using psychology on people and is that ethically <laughs> right. acceptable? And I think um you you talked to, uh, at the beginning about Richard Thaler, so he co wrote a book called Nudge, um, along with Cass Sunstein. And one of the things that um they they talk about there is that sort of ethical quandary of, you know, mm. what you do. But they pointed out that Um, you know, we are influenced by our environment all the time. They called it choice architecture. Okay. And, you know, the fact of the matter is that whatever government decides to do or not do is already designing the choice architecture. It's already the thing that will influence how people will behave and how people will respond. Even if you don't have anything and leave it, you know, as a blank slate. So, you know... um, I mentioned examples from New Zealand, the Be A Tidy Kiwi campaign. Oh, right, yeah. To kind of social norm messages. Now, the government could have gone, well, it's individuals' freedom of choice to decide whether or not to throw litter around. Yeah. <laughs> sure, yeah. Uh, absolutely. But yeah. You know, people thought, well, hang on, this is spoiling our environment, and you know, we kind of all lose out as a result of it. So there was an acceptance of let's try and do something to influence behavior and intervene. And we're doing it all the time, you know, whether it is getting people to pay their taxes or park, you know, pay for their parking or um, not drive too fast, whether it's getting people to walk about or, you know, not hit their partners, not join gangs to find work, you know, so you can kind of see a spectrum of different levels of challenge and different levels of state intervention. Mm. But actually... You know the whole point of government is about influencing and shaping what its citizens do and don't do in some way, yeah. and there's no such thing as neutral choice architecture in that sense, right. so let's be realistic and deliberate in thinking about that stuff, whether it's from a consumer protection point of view, whether it's from a social welfare point of view, whether it's mm. about you know getting people to pay their fair share of taxes um, or not drop litter and so let's use. The tools and techniques that the likes of marketers in some ways have embraced for a long time and use them to help government be better and more effective at what it does. Wow.
0: Yeah so on a personal level for you as i realize our time has flown by um it would be great to hear you know what is it about this that for for you really inspires you on a personal level what what is it that kind of drives you forward to keep doing this kind of work and and uh, i mean you mentioned it was a incredibly inspiring moment for you when you first heard about um the work of the behavioral insights team um so yeah what's what's in it for
1: you (laughs) (laughs) um i I, I think that's a great question. I mean, there there are probably two things. One is um, the Behavioral Insights Team is a is a social purpose company, and you know we we are about social impact. We're we're actually part owned by the employees ourselves. And one of the things that we do when we're you know whenever there's a project, whenever there's an idea, um, is we. Sit down you know as a as a team as a group, whatever, and the first question we ask ourselves is what's the social impact and that is tremendously inspiring for me to be able to wow. stop yeah what's the social impact before we decide whether we're going to do something or not you know that's that's a great way to be judicious about the types of projects that you take on, and at the end of the day, you know the thing that gets me out of bed in the morning at the end of the day gets out of bed in the morning um <laughs> Uh, mixing my metaphors but to me I being in the public service was all about making a difference you know the the single sort of biggest influence in my life in my previous career was a job I worked on in Sierra Leone and the reason for that was because I could see the day-to-day difference we were making to people's lives out there and you know I think if we can help make individual lives better in New Zealand and particularly for those who need that help who are you know in the kind of most difficult circumstances then that's a tremendously inspiring thing and especially if we can turn that into systemic change in how government interacts with its citizens in how people think about policy in how regulations are designed and make it better more effective and make that lasting change i think that's a fantastic thing to be involved in um, and um yeah it, it excites and inspires me every day you know you
0: just said the magic words for me right there <laughs> that is uh, I, I love it. yeah um, and that, that whole idea absolutely of, of how do you make a meaningful difference has been a thing that's driven me for uh, well gosh as long as i can remember even kind of was part of the reason why i started doing this podcast too so um look i think this is brilliant so if if Somebody listening now wants to become involved with your team and and um, you know benefit from the uh, advice that you can give them or just partner with you in something. What's the best way for them to get in touch with you?
1: Um, probably the easiest thing is um, go go to our website, um, www.bi.team, dub dub dot bi dot team, and um, there's a there's a link on there to locations and Wellington's got details of myself and Fela, my colleague and um yet yeah, you can get in touch with us through our info address there um and yeah we'd love to hear from you.
0: and if you ever decide to start an office in auckland give me a call <laughs> right. thanks, hey uh, lee, lee thank you once again it's been it's been a real pleasure and um I, I do wish you all the best with the work you're doing i think it's got uh, the the potential to make a massive difference in, in people's lives so um i just hope you go from strength to
1: strength fantastic thanks for your time
0: Lee McCauley, everybody. Would you believe that he's never done that kind of thing before? What a pro. Um, from the Behavioural Insights team, and I'm very excited to see how they can contribute to better public policy in New Zealand. How cool to have a job where your whole thing is, how do you make a greater difference in people's lives? Ah, oh, that's where it's at. Um, I hope you enjoyed that episode. Don't forget you can contact me via the Andrew Curtis Show at gmail.com. That's us for another week. Next week... Uh, Maybe the Pope, who knows.